The following episode was recorded prior to the sad news of Robin Williams' death. We asked that our discussion on his 1998 film, What Dreams May Come, which covers the themes of suicide and the afterlife, be heard in that context. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcasts. gentlemen we have a problem Godzilla is stampeding his way through New York City like an unstoppable rampaging thing I propose a full military strike tanks aircraft everything just hammer him in missiles until he dies you fool you can't defeat Godzilla with conventional weapons have you learned nothing it's quite all right I think my forces are more than capable fire Oh, oh, that that, that worked. Y- you know, I I was um just bravado there for a moment. Then I thought I was going to have egg all over my face. No, big lizard dead. Conventional forces highly effective. Who knew? Uh, Captain, you're needed in the ready room. What? Oh yes, of course, an important meeting. Uh, computer, halt holodeck program Godzilla 1. Captain's log, stardate 1998. I am about to give the most important mission briefing I have ever given in my long, illustrious career in Starfleet. Officers, we have a problem. Below us on the planet, we have around 300 non-indigenous colonists who have forsworn technology to pursue their own idealized peasantry lifestyle. Starfleet want them peacefully moved to a new colony so our new sinister allies can use the planet's fountain of youth to make vital medical supplies for the ongoing war with the Dominion. However, we are disobeying those orders and fighting to keep those colonists on that planet that isn't really theirs. Now, some of you may remember an episode of Next Generation from Series 7, where we had to move all those American Indians who just wanted to pursue their idealized primitive lifestyle on a colony planet, and on that event, Wesley Crusher sided with those colonists, and I kicked him permanently out of Starfleet for insubordination. Now, some of you have asked, what is the difference here? Now, let me assure you, it's not because the latest batch of colonists are white. Oh no. It's because one of them is giving me come-get-me eyes, and she won't want to bonk me if this unnaturally long-lived woman isn't allowed to keep her fountain of youth. What's more, here's the twist, gentlemen. Our sinister allies have a hidden motive for peacefully moving those colonists down there, and it's because they used to be members of that colony, but were cast out and denied the fountain of youth because they wanted to use technology.
technology. The bastards. I mean, that's how you deal with people who don't want to enjoy the benefits of your back-breaking farm labour. You exile them from the planet. Shunning your own flesh and blood is the idealised hippie way of... Hmm. Actually, now I come to think about it, those colonists sound like a bunch of stuck-up dicks. Oh, to hell with it. Lieutenant Commander Data, use the tractor beam to hurl a meteorite at the planet. Oh, no, let's go full Michael Bay. Make it two asteroids! Uh, why aren't any of you moving? I gave an order. Hey, who turned off all the lights? Oh, my God. We don't have a warp core breach, do we? Hey, where are you all going? Come back. You just can't walk off a spaceship. Uh, get back here now. That's an order. Make it so. Ian, this is the controller of your life speaking. I want you to pay attention to what's coming to you now may come as a shock. You are not really Captain Picard of the Starship Enterprise. This is, in fact, an ingenious simulation we've been putting you through for the benefit of TV entertainment. But, uh, budget's run out. So, show's over, it's been cancelled, so please can you uh, now leave the studio and try and reassimilate yourself back into real life. Sorry for all the confusion you're going to be going through. Well, there we are. Bye! Wait a minute. Are you telling me all those holodeck simulations I've been running weren't really simulations, but just actors? Oh my god. I don't know what's more disturbing. The fact that that was the real Gillian Anderson with me in that bath full of banana yogurt, or the fact it was watched by 12 million viewers. Uh, Ian, are you alright? You're standing over here you know, muttering to yourself. It's as if something's going off in your brain, and I'm not sure what it is. I um, yeah. I just don't want to discuss the day I've had, if it's all the same to you. Uh, and all right, I... well, how about instead of discussing the day you've had, we've discussed the films of 1998 instead. Yes, that sounds very good. Uh, I think someone is trying to batter their way in from next door, but uh, I shall ignore them and press ahead with the podcast. <laughs> uh, joining us tonight, of course, is Justin. Hello, Justin. Hello, everyone. How are you? So, yes, uh, 1998. Now, one thing that I, I've got straight off the bat to say about this, this is really, um, thankfully, as uh, I think we noticed with 1988 and indeed with 1978 and 79, that, that, you know, there isn't a demarcation point. There isn't like, oh, yeah, now it's 2000, it was 1999. So obviously all the films of 1999 are rubbish and all the films of 2000 are all right. No, it, it kind of leaks and although we have some sort of less than marvellous stuff here, we do have some good stuff here as well. This is where people start to get very enthusiastic, and by people I mean production companies, uh, about CGI, but it isn't quite there yet. So I think a lot of people are kind of down on this period, because this is the period of the most obviously strained kind of uh, CGI efforts. Before it start, before all of the companies start to pull together and be able to do really good CGI as we go through the 2000s. So there's, there's quite a lot of ropey CGI to talk about this year. So, uh, the, the question really is, uh, where to start? I'm kind of tending to think that we should possibly get Armageddon out of the way. It is, a uh, like a large approaching meteorite, isn't it? Um, well, in fact, while we're at the 
point of Armageddon. Deep Impact was this year as well. I, was not, I guess well, I want to bookend it by talking about Deep Impact at the end, but perhaps get them no, both no, at the no, same let's time. Back both together. <laughs> There's only so much asteroid colliding with the Earth I can do in one yeah. podcast. I actually only saw Deep Impact for the first time about two weeks ago, aware of the impending 1998 podcast coming up. I, I picked it out and watched it. Um, it's very earnest, I mean, isn't it? It's it less is, offensive than, than uh, Armageddon, I think. In what way is Armageddon offensive? Well, it's got that um, that that awful nausea-inducing American flag-waving stuff that you you do get in these type of films. This sets the this like this to me is the low point of this the the American let's save the world disaster movie because it is so outrageous that. I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure Americans love it. You know, they, why not? It's, it's waving their flag. But I mean, for everyone else, it's just too much. You know, this is going to go on to be. We're going to see this again and again in Transformer movies, and various things are going to come. But this was, I uh, parts of this, I'm just like, this is just stupid. I can't watch this anymore. They, they both kind of, they're both two sides of a, a, a kind of coin. Where Deep Impact has that sort of like as Ian says, in earnestness, yeah. and you feel maybe it's a bit too worthy. Um, and then Armageddon is that that place where Michael Bay, uh, I mean, we, we completely failed to discuss in 1997, Con Air. And yeah. at the point at which Con Air came out, the action movie, I mean, that the, the thing about Con Air is that you either love Con Air or you hate it. And if you hate it, it's because you don't realise that Con Air is a joke. Yeah. It's it's that thing of people mistaking parody for the thing that it's parodying. I mean, how the hell you can mistake a film in which a high-speed pursuit through Las Vegas begins with a low-angle shot of the cycle tyre and then a big half-chewed donut falls to the floor by the thing and the motorbike takes off, thus signalling that, Cops love donuts, everyone. As, as a, like a serious attempt at an action movie is beyond me, you know. Why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? You know, it's like you know, all well, of this stuff. It's, it's a joke. I, I take it like Where, Poe's Law, being unable to tell parody from the real thing. Well, exactly. And at that point, I embraced fully the the ethic of the action movie and loved it and was really ready, you know, and thought, you know, if you look back over the career of uh, of the uh, guys whose names temporarily escaped me, Simpson and Bruckheimer, who produced all these things from Conair, was like, oh, look at The Rock and look at Bad Boys. Like, these guys have done some really amazing work. I'm totally there next time they do a movie. And then the next thing they come up with Armageddon, which is kind of like the polar opposite of Conair. It's like, it is ridiculous, but it, it's not self-aware. It doesn't realise it's ridiculous to a certain extent. It, it, it tries to take itself seriously and just looks like an arse. Whereas Deep Rising is almost afraid to do anything fun. Yeah. Because what's fun about... It's like someone... It's like, you know, we're making a movie about the a me, a disaster movie about a meteorite hitting Earth. Oh, well, if that actually happened, it would be pretty miserable, wouldn't it? We'd better make sure no one has any fun. It's like, well, yeah, but it is a movie. Yeah. A sort of science fiction-y movie about stuff. Okay. Yeah, so somewhere in the middle of that, you know, yeah. it's possibly a good movie, but they both have hit the mark in the wrong directions. Yeah. So, yeah. Ironically. 
However, um, I should say that I did have an idea uh, while researching this topic last night. Uh, the, the way that we could get through the films without actually, uh, of 1998, without actually just going through a list, is through that amazing invention, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Right. Because what I noticed was that there's little things that cross over between every movie I watched last night and going on from there, um, and that'll help us skip around the list. For example, Ben Affleck is well known for being in Armageddon. But he's less well-known in 1998 for being in Phantoms, at least in this country. I mean, it's a bit of a joke. Phantoms is a bit of a joke in this country because he didn't perform very well at the box office in the US. And so here it was relegated to the direct-to-video market when such a thing still existed. But um, I, wa- I, I watched it last night again. I uh, the beginning of the film is m- much better than it, uh, it kind of loses track and gets worse because actually the first the first part of it when they're just kind of you know uncovering the mystery these kind of weird things that are going on in this town is you know it's kind of interesting and it's building to something and then it actually just just gets silly yeah it is it is definitely a film which yeah i mean the big problem with it is that um it, it's i think that there's a way to handle one of these things like i was thinking Wow, I always thought of this film as kind of hollow and not having enough people in it and not being exciting enough or involving enough. And it's just, you know, rather flat, which all of these things are true. But then you think, wait a second, I love the film of Silent Hill and that's got like two less people in it and and or something. You know, it's not, you know, but part of the vibe of Silent Hill, Silent Hill is the isolation of it all. Yeah, and I think that Phantoms doesn't really harp on that. I mean, the big problem, of course, is that it's a, a trans, it's, it's an adaptation of a novel by Deed Kuntz, who is not a great writer. That's kind of hobbled it straight out of the gate. I mean, yes, so you've got, um, Peter O'Toole, Ben Affleck, Liv Schreiber, of course. You know, it's like Liv Schreiber at the beginning of the film as well. It's quite hilarious. He doesn't say much. He just kind of goes, oh, yeah, and, like, stands there and doesn't do anything when he's famous for playing complete nut jobs. And it's a bit like having Jack Nicholson standing around going, yes, I'm being low-key and quiet. It's like, you are going to go nuts yes. at some point. <laughs> That's why people hire you. And, indeed, this is what happened. But, yes, one of the things that I noticed last night was that the three movies I chose to catch up on were all distributed by Miramax. This really is a time of Miramax right now. So the Weedsteins have their grubby paws all over the movie industry at this point. And so maybe as Phantoms really isn't something to talk about in any great depth due to the fact there is no depth there for it to go into. A good thing to possibly skip to would be another Weinstein effort, uh, The Faculty. The year after, or two years, within two years anyway, of Guillermo del Toro doing his least Guillermo del Toro movie ever, Robert Rodriguez gives us this, which is his least Robert Rodriguez movie. I mean, I was watching it going, well, it's okay, but you wouldn't be able to tell it was Robert Rodriguez that had directed this. No, I, mean, I think, you know, it was, it was noticeable at the time for, you know, being a postmodern sci-fi stroke horror in the same way that um, Scream had come along and kind of shook things up a bit. So, uh, I mean, now I think a lot of that is more commonplace anyway. But, you know, I, I quite, I seem to quite enjoying it at the time. 
Yeah, it was okay. I had pretty much forgotten it. It was actually better than I remember it being. I remember finding it quite ho-hum at the time. Whereas it was like, yeah, it's all right. It has to be said that all of the stuff where they they do with, oh, we're going to do with paranoid alien sci-fi, what Scream did with slasher movies. What, ruined them entirely for an entire generation? Ah, great. Thanks for that. Hmm. But no, I mean, you know, in serious, in all seriousness, slasher movies are stupid. So spoofing them and being tongue-in-cheek and postmodern about them is fine. But there are at least three references to Men in Black. In the faculty. It's like, yeah, I mean, slasher movies are slasher movies. You have some guy, maybe he's wearing a hockey mask or a gas mask or some other thing or a sack. And then he's got some kind of sharp weapon like a machete or an axe or, you know, and then he goes around killing young people. That's what they do. So when you tie them all together, there's something there to be tied together. But trying to tie together invasion of the body snatchers and men in black. This is, we're paying sort of lip service to this concept than anything else. uh, Well, I I, I can see the connection because men in black are associated with, uh, you know, they're either either government agents or they're aliens, one of the two. It's the part of the the cultural phenomenon of men in black. And X-Files has been around, so men in black conspiracies abound in the culture at the moment. I I kind of agree, though, that it doesn't really serve much purpose. To reference it all. Yeah. I mean, at the time it was quite fresh. And, you know, because this thing was going around and, and, and with Scream, and so it was like, okay, I have to admit, I haven't seen it for some years, so I don't know how it stands up. It, well, the CGI is pretty terrible, but then, of course, this is the year of terrible CGI, so what more do you expect? But like uh, the Phantoms and Liv Schreiber casting, when the faculty of your school is like Robert Patrick, Piper Laurie, Ted Levine... It's like all these people. It's like, so you've got Buffalo Bill, the psycho wife from Catherine Martell from Twin Peaks, and the T-1000. Oh, and Xenia on the top, of course, Famke Janssen. She's another one of the teachers. You've hired all these people who are famous for playing sociopaths to play these teachers in this school. Nothing could possibly go wrong here. Um, it, it just, yeah, it's mental. And the other thing, of course, that happens these days, uh, which wouldn't have happened at the time that it came out, is that uh, you see Elijah Wood get off the school bus and instantly instantly have the urge to go, aliens have taken over the school, Mr. Frodo. So, you know, that, that's that's probably not something that, you know, in retrospect they would have desired. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. It's more fun than I thought it was. But it is, I think there was a thing where Robert Rodriguez did El Mariachi and he did Desperado and he did From Dusk Till Dawn. And then he comes up with this. And there's this fear, like so many times you've seen it, this director is now going to totally become just a, an anonymous kind of blank director that, that directs stuff that you wouldn't know. No, in fact, I mean, the, the thing that Robert Rodriguez did is go completely nuts and go, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm thinking of jacking it in. And thankfully, digital cameras came out. So he did Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and he hasn't looked back since then. They say, I, he said, I probably would have given up being a filmmaker because it's so hard to know what you've got. And I found that terrible to think, have I got it or does it not work? And now that I've got digital, I can know I've got what I've got and continue to make the movie. And so, yeah, if you then contrast that with, you know, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Planet Terror, Machete, all of the things that Robert Rodriguez has done then, this stands out like a sore thumb as like the one thing he did that was just 
It's a lost evolutionary branch, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, of course, it doesn't help the, in addition that the faculty is, is written by the guy who brought us uh, Dawson's Creek, in addition to Scream, let's not forget that. It was also really funny, is that a bit where you're like, huh, remember when Josh Hartnett used to be big? Oh, oh, yeah, they thought he was going to be famous. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so from uh, Dawson's Creek... Uh, we can go to Katie Holmes, of course, uh, who was uh, in another thing that didn't do very well in the cinema in the United States. And so this director video here, Disturbing Behaviour. And if you gave me a choice between watching The Faculty and Disturbing... I mean, you know, people make a big thing of Deep Rising and Armageddon. Well, Disturbing Behaviour and The Faculty both came out in the same year. And they're basically the same film, slightly different. Has people seen... Disturbing behaviour. Can you just briefly? Disturbing behaviour is the one where the teachers have decided to brainwash the children. Oh yes, so, I have seen it. Yes. Yes, I rather enjoyed it. It was all right. It was. I, th- I think there is a feeling to which it is like, yeah, I'm not. You know. Mm. The thing is that nowadays, with the advent of the internet and the way that information gets disseminated, you can tell the difference between something that is, this was produced to be straight to video and um, something that happens to be straight to video in the UK because it didn't do very well at the cinema in the States. But those days, everything that was straight to video was, that's how it became, you know, a mark of low quality. These are things that were not good enough to be put into a cinema screen over here. These days, that was is much harder because, of course, we've got multiplexes everywhere, so they're going to put any old crap in there, aren't they? He said witheringly. So where to go from disturbing behaviour? Uh, maybe we should just uh, skip across the list. Uh, well, we just need to talk about something good that came out in uh, in this year, possibly. Please. Uh, let us talk about the fact that 1998 is the year of Blade. Go on, Leo. It's your scene the again, f- isn't it? The first, the first Marvel movie where, I mean, I think that's one of the things. I mean, in 1998, you could make a low-key Marvel movie. People would go into the movie not knowing it was a Marvel movie. The Marvel yeah, that- would come up at the beginning and go, oh, is this something to do with Marvel comics then? Because yeah, well, to be fair, it's not a hugely, you know, famous name for those of you who aren't comic fans. Well, no, because and it's about vampires, so you're not going to assume really that it's from a comic, are you? Truthfully, if they were going to name it what it was, because until Blade the movie, Blade never had a comic. He didn't. He had, he got featuring Blade, but he never had a Blade comic until... He had, he appeared on the, you know, I've, I've seen some memory from, um, I'm not, uh, Spider-Man cartoons and things. So, I mean, he has, he has been a, a thing that people would know about. But, oh, um, yeah, no, 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 he was yeah. in Spider-Man, and he was a main character in Tomb of Dracula. That was the title right. he was. So, and in Tomb of Dracula, although Dracula was like, the big bad, like the biggest of all big bads, that had, you know, all of the others, like Deacon Frost, he was a sub-villain that sometimes they fought instead of Dracula, you know, so uh, essentially Blade is a Tomb of Dracula movie, but of course they would have been confused by the fact 
well, the main character's called Blade, the main villain's called Deacon Frost, Dracula is nowhere to be seen, so why is it called Tomb of Dracula? But it is, a, yeah, I mean, Blade is a, a faithful adaptation-ish uh, of the sort of uh, Tomb of Dracula concept. But they had to call it Blade because he's the hero, uh, and that confuses people less. But it is quite hilarious to think that that people kind of got at this stage in history, the film studios felt people had to be tricked into going to see a comic book property at the cinema. Well, I don't necessarily think it's it's a, uh, a selling point to be a comic book adaptation. I think films ultimately do have to stand or fall on their own merits. Oh yes, they do definitely. But, you know, but, We're still in the the area of those of you who remember those dark times of, you know, the comic book adaption and things haven't really got into full swing yet. So so it's actually rather a negative thing to say something's coming from a comic book at this stage. This is the year, you know, after Batman and Robin. It would be fair to say that in this year, 1998, this is probably the lowest point. If you go to a movie studio and say, I want to do a comic book movie in 1998... Then they say, oh, yes, Mr. Singer, which one were you thinking of? And he says, X-Men. And they go, well, all right, then have a go. But no, but in theory, they're like, mm, you better make it not anything like comic. We, we're going to try and hide the fact that it's from a comic book. And, and you know, it, it's it's seen as a bad thing all of a sudden yeah. at this point to be from a comic book. And let's not forget Batman and Robin didn't just ruin comic book adaptations reputation. It also ruined people's careers. Like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was at a particularly low point at this time. And, and Uma Thurman probably uh, contributed to the lack of success for the Avengers. Uh, not yeah. those Avengers, not Iron Man, not Thor. No, the British Avengers, which this film came out this year, and I paid £2.50. That's how much I care about this podcast, because I remember saying I had a great time in the cinema watching this and was surprised that people were so down on it. And I watched it again last night, and I can report it is still an enormous amount of fun. Stupid as anything, but an enormous amount of fun. Well, um, it's, it's, about, I, it's about kind of the cultural know-how of what the original Avengers was and being willing to go with the absurd bonkersness of it all. Well, I understand that. One of the things that contributed to its utter terrible performance at the box office was due to the fact that Americans really couldn't understand what the hell was going on at all, which I can totally understand. Um, Sean Connery to this day has no idea what the film was about. And of course, the American audience, you know, the sci-fi enthusiasts would would get confused with the Avengers cartoon. So, you know... If you look at the Amazon.co.uk reviews of the DVD of Avengers... All the people who are there reviewing it say, this is pretty good, actually. I mean, it, it was totally mishandled. Apart from anything else, it's a sprightly 85 minutes in length. And the reason for this is because the Weinsteins, remember them from earlier? Yeah, every film that came out this year, more or less, had something to do with them. They got a bit nervous about it and chopped out. It was probably going to be more like... A, I mean, these days, if you had an action movie like The Avengers, it would be at least two hours long. I mean, this is what surprised me about it is that the people who made it totally embraced the Avengers-ness of it. And these days, if people can get all the cultural ducks in a row, you would absolutely think they got this bob on. There was a bit, 
And it made me laugh like hell in the cinema, and it made me chuckle still to this day, where Sean Connery's uh, overseeing like a a boardroom in a futuristic boardroom room, and everyone's a different coloured teddy bear, and it looks like this weird mashup of the prisoner and Teletubbies. And you're just like, this is insane, but at the same time, genius, but at the same time, insane and it, it, it flip-flops between the insanity of britishness and the insanity of insanity and some bizarre level of genius you know i mean it's it's one of the few films i've ever seen that's that's python-esque without actually being anything to do with monty python or even trying to be python-esque but it is python-esque i mean it, it, the point is it's impossible now you would not be able to do this again because it has to be called The Avengers, because that's what the television series was called. But it can't be, because we now know who The Avengers are. It's a really good movie. I'm sorry to say, everyone. Has, has everyone seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've seen parts of it. Oh, um, Justin, Justin, you should really take the time to sit down and watch it. Like, really okay. watch it. Because you in particular would love it. It's got some really striking visuals in it, and they they use that there's some rope there is some ropey CGI, but and also the other thing that struck me about it was that this is 1998, you know, one of the darkest years for Doctor Who, and it has a very Doctor Who-ish vibe to it, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So yeah, uh, captures the spirit of the original series from what I saw. What I would say is is it takes the spirit of the original series, shoots it full of, like, speed and hallucinogens and unleashes it on an unsuspecting public. And the unsuspecting public are like, whoa, what the hell was that? So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Ralph Fiennes is brilliant. Uma Thurman is fine, although obviously I think that she was literally... Oh, she's that woman who was Poison Ivy at this point, so nobody was taking her seriously. No, Sean she's Connery, still got a bit of Pulp Fiction vibe uh, chic about it, doesn't she? I don't... I think she kind of... Because if you think about it, she did Pulp Fiction, she did Batman and Robin, she did something else that was a terrible failure in between. And I think she she sort of squandered... Yeah, her, as you say, Pulp Fiction chic... She kind of, it, it kind of went the way of, of, you know, all things at that time. So, yeah, that, that, the Avengers is a, a sad I might have missed the actually time because I didn't bother seeing it and I saw it, say, parts of it. And I think I was a bit like, oh, not Uma Thurman, why couldn't we have an English actress? I was a bit kind of probably just, just didn't give it the time of day. So I, I will, I will really look at that. I'll... Yeah. You, you watch the Avengers and then you watch Lost in Space which is another television adaptation. You're just like, yes, I understand why people were really down on Lost in Space. But Avengers, it's got a lot of charm. And and Eddie is trying his hardest to act, uh, not really making it. But, you know, uh, moving on, Lost in Space was this year. Uh, I saw that, well, yes. Uh, and I, I was, as a kid, I was, because I re-ran the original series on Channel 4, uh, and so I was fully au fait with the series, and I was jolly looking forward to this. And I watch it, and you come away and you go, uh, I, I don't know what to say, it's a hard it's a hard concept to adapt to a film, it's a series. It's a bit of a mess, actually. I mean, I think that there's, there's some wrong footing going on, really, with this. I think that, um, what's his face from Friends, sorry, I, my mind's gone blank. 
Um, Joey from France. Matt I don't know who you're talking about. Matt, it's funny that your mind's gone blank. Matt. You sure your mind hasn't gone Le Blanc? Uh, <laughs> I'm watching it. I'm not quite sure whether he thinks it's a spoof or he's serious. There's something about his performance that he's like, when he's really like doing this, I'm serious. He seems like funny. He doesn't seem very believable. So I think maybe he's got a different idea in his head that this was just meant to be sending up this kind of stuff. There's a really irritating girl in it who I can't watch. It's just nauseating most of the time. There's a horrible CGI animal in it, which is just the most ugliest thing I think I've ever seen on screen. This massive eye thing. Just, it's just horrible. That um, he's in there inexplicably for no reason. Well, whatsoever. it's there because in the TV anything. series they had, a, they had a chimp in a suit as a pet, which went goop, goop, goop all the time. Well, yeah, I know, but okay, I, I understand what it's okay. It, I mean, I didn't really watch the show that much, and I don't remember that much about it. But anyway, that wasn't a very good choice, I think. Even with even with the CGI at the stand of the, of the day, it looked really poor. Uh, if it had been done better, then possibly. But it's like it's a bit of a mess because parts of it I really enjoy, and the set and the stuff at the beginning, all the thing, Earth and stuff, and it just kind of goes all over the place. I, I just think it was a you know, probably several writers trying to kind of combine it, a kind of a strange cast that doesn't quite hold together. Gary Oldman is kind of there, you know, doing the bad guy thing as he as he often does. I, it just doesn't quite hang together for me. It's just a bit messy. I think that, like, there's a bit of sequences seem to be well, let's do it at Star Wars. Let's take that where they're zooming through. Well, that that sequence, that that, that sequence. But what genre it fits into a weird place because it's kind of partly it's trying to do something more horrific and then it's trying to do something more family friendly and I I just think it's a bit of a mess generally. I think you look at the origin of the TV series and the thing is the the Robinson family pretty much very quickly dissolve into the background of 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 the series because the breakout characters are of course Doctor Smith and the robot and it is the Doctor Smith and robot television series. Uh, Dr. Smith was only supposed to be in a few episodes, but jolly, he was having such a jolly good time being on screen. Let's keep him around. So he was kind of a breakout character. So when you put the focus back on the Robinson family for the film, it's kind of like, well, you're, you're kind of developing the elements people weren't that interested in. We want the robot to go danger, danger with Robinson. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I, I, all I really recall about it is that it kind of happens for a couple of hours. And <laughs> the one thing that struck me really deeply when I watched it was, no, Dr. Smith isn't, he isn't actually supposed to be evil. He's supposed to be selfish and mercenary. Um, he, he yeah. The thing is, the origin in the film is the same he was in the TV series. He was a saboteur that got on board the ship to sabotage it to a golf course and got stuck on board when it took off. That, that is, that is yes. genuinely how Smith started out in the series. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, that's, that's entirely acceptable as an origin, but it was later in the film where he, I don't know, some, it seemed to me there was some kind of, I mean, there was some kind of stakes conversation at some point where he tries to take over the universe and be like Ming the Merciless or something. I was like, no, yes. you've completely missed the point of this character in that one simple action. Yes. When I we went to see this at the cinema, went with a group of friends, uh, what should we go see? It was this or Star Trek Insurrection, and went to see Lost in Space instead. And I have never seen Star Trek Insurrection in the cinema ever. 
Uh, is this is this a loss? No. Insurrection or Star Trek Nemesis, which is worse? It's Insurrection. I mean, you can look at genuine structural problems in Nemesis and point to them and go, look, there's a giant elephant turd right there in the center of everything. But with, with Insurrection, it's more like a buffet of, of little turds all laid out for you. It is so underambitious. It's so bound up in TV. The people made this for TV people, so they were thinking episodically. So they thought, we've just done a big action-adventure thing with the Borg. Let's go more low-key for the next film. Like, no, 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 that's not how you make films, you fools. And it's the, mo- the stakes, gentlemen, have never been lower. If the bad guys were allowed to yeah. proceed with their scheme unhindered, what would have happened was a group of colonists would be moved to a different planet where they can continue their lives and live out their lives naturally. They just won't be mortal anymore. That's it. That's what the bad guys, uh, the ultimate consequences of the bad guys' actions are going to be. Um, anyone inspired to uh, yeah. uh, rebel against the Federation here? Anyone? Uh, yes. No, I mean, I did find it rather unfilming, I have to say. I think that's why this is following the pattern, isn't it? Of the kind of half decent one, pretty poor one, yeah, kind of thing that is going to go for, for a little while. So yes, well, yeah, a, a little was... while is until the next movie, at which point they turn in a couple of stinkers. At which point it all goes. Well, the no. thing about the thing, you look at Nemesis, and, and yes, it's it's a problematic movie, and it's not a good one. But by goodness, at least they were trying. They were seriously trying in Nemesis to have a, an action film centered around character-based stories. In this one, it's it's like it's it's it is like just another episode of Star Trek, and not a very good one. Yeah, it's 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 just really forgettable. And I think one they really dropped the ball because obviously, as we remarked at the time of first contact, this was the one that got people who were like, I don't even like Star Trek into the cinema. Well, this is the one that got some of those people back into the cinema, and they went, oh no, this is what I didn't like, and then they left. Yeah. The voice like, in this movie was so bad, people like me, who were low-hanging fruit in terms of people who go see a Star Trek film, couldn't be bothered. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, well, here's the, this is the crux of the matter, isn't it? It's like, people who were there with their ear to the ground were like, yeah, I'm going to avoid that one. But of course, what they crucially did was that with um, First Contact, some people had been dragged against their will and to see it and then had a good time. Those people who don't keep their ear to the ground just went, oh, this is another Star Trek. I enjoyed the last one. And it, it, that's it. It seals the deal. It's, it's like, you know, being given a little chocolate ice cream and then a big punch in the face. You know, you're not going to go back to that ice cream shop again. It was a disaster in more ways than one. And indeed, you know, the state of Star Trek as it is today may even be attributable to insurrection because it probably put a lot of people off and made them actually feel quite unpleasant about Star Trek for life. Yeah, certainly the studio went in with zero I confidence think, in Nemesis. I, I think that it's, as yet, we have not two, two uh, consecutive Star Trek films that are decent. No. That, yeah, that is, that is that's not oh no wait no 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 that's three is not as bad as people fair. say no yeah well in fact three's uh, uh, when people enumerate what happens in three it was pretty good the only problem with it is the big problem with star trek three is that the marketing department didn't understand that the destruction of the enterprise should be a surprise and so they put it on a poster and Really, there's a lot goes off in three. Uh, as people pointed out, you know, two, three and four as a, a single continuous narrative. And it, 
there's, you know, that means that three, ironically, as a third film, sits in that uncomfortable second movie in a sort of Lord of the Rings-esque Star Trek Odyssey kind of position. But, you know, it's the, that means it's the quirky one. It's like the Back to the Future 2 of that particular trilogy. So, yeah, I mean, Star Trek 3 is not actually that bad. After that, it does definitely go, you know, let me go and punch God in the face. Ooh, Klingons. Oh, no. Kirk fell off a gantry. Yay, Paul. Oh, stakes are low. Oh, oh God. The Bane is being Captain Picard. Oh, that would have made things interesting, wouldn't it? I am your Hello there, Captain Picard. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, it, it just, yeah. It has been up and down. And then, oh, look, it's all fun and shiny. And, and look, Zachary Quinto can play Mr. Spock. And then, no, he's definitely not Khan. Definitely not Khan. Khan? Who's that? He's Khan! You're not pleased? You know, so that's the, the pattern that we've had. That's the Star, Star Trek we've had up until this point. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think Star Trek is a history of, of every time they have a winner... They go out and get drunk or something, and then the next one is the hangover. It is ridiculous. And um, clear, clearly, from from that, it seems like they need to. It may be better if they form little mini trilogies within the franchise rather than just keep, keep, them, yeah. keep them completely separate. Absolutely, I think that's a, that's an idea. Uh, to toy with also not really overwhelming people with the uh, uh, marvelous moviosity of a television adaptation is the x-files this year which we have discussed in the past yes I, I was... well it's really just you know a mini, it's just a it's just a long film that fits between two series really isn't it i mean i mean a, t- a lot over long tv episode really so I'm it's a bit like that uh, TV <laughs> movie in the 24, between 24 season 6 and season 7. They did it. I mean, do you really need to go and see the X-Files at, at the cinema? No, of course you don't. You just, you know, it's it's not... I mean, I don't remember it being an a overtly cinematic experience. It just seemed to be much of the same, just longer. There was a lot of build-up and excitement to it, and a lot of announcement of who was cast and who was in it, and uh, there was there was excitement about who they cast it, and all these parts are very small and inconsequential. And ultimately, it's like, at the end, we just get to have a movie budget so we can see a, a flying saucer take up out, take, lift off out of the ice. Other than that, nothing. Nothing. It gives us nothing. They kill off a few characters that would be in the series. Nothing else. That's it. Done. I think this was this was it for me. This was the end. It was like this isn't going anywhere. You finally had a movie. You're going to give us anything? No, more intrigue. Stuff you. I'm out of here. Well, that's kind of like the, because the film was built on oh the, the the whole premise of the X Files is if anything had happened in X Files the movie that was in any way like conclusively something is happening that would kind of ruin the X-Files. Oh, no, very really. important things. They explain the nature of the black goo. That's it. Yeah. It, it just basically needs to be the end, doesn't it, really? The X-Files movie needs to be the big, you know, we've built all up and now and the end on a bang because, because or at least, a, a, and then a movie franchise rather than what they did make it as. It's like, well, let's make this film, you know, to fit neatly between the series. And, and you're like, well, don't do that. Just... Just put it in the series. We don't need to go and spend money on this. Yeah, I mean, and then you you do have the question. I mean, I have this question now, and I can't myself think of an answer. If you have the opportunity to do an X-Files movie, 
what is a movie idea that fits with the X-Files? I haven't seen the second movie yet. It's hard to comment. That was a lot more low-key. I think I might be up for that one. The second one is more like Monster of the Week, isn't it, really? Which I guess works fine, actually. It's a, to, to, to put all the intrigue in, in, in the movie is a bit messy because you, then you've got to watch it. It doesn't stand alone because it carries on from in between the series. And, you know, you're not going to have everything answered. Whereas if you're just going to do a Monster of the Week, well, then that's fine because it's completely standalone. I mean, it's pointless unless it's a big, massive budget and it's something particularly special. But really, it's like, do we really need to see these? No, I don't think so. I don't think they... They haven't, I haven't really helped X-Files, and X-Files did just, you know, disappear up its own arse eventually. Yeah. Um, so, so, and I don't think the yeah. films... There's a further evidence that the story arcs suck. The actual standalone episodes of Monsters of the Week of X-Files are what we all remember and love about it all. Uh, well, in X-Files, the story arcs definitely sucked because, you know, it was a, the problem is it was a great television premise. It was like, as long as it doesn't go anywhere, it'll be fine. But, um, what they really wanted to do was something good. You know, you didn't want game changes. That's not what you want. Not out of X-Files. You want the game to stay exactly the same every week. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a problem when it comes to, to big events because, you know, what are you going to do in your TV series afterwards? So to summarize, we've kind of gone through, you know, the Avengers, which was fine, but underwhelming at the box office, Star Trek Insurrection, which was a completely forgettable, Lost in Space, which was a real misfire, the X-Files, again, completely forgettable. Is it any wonder that when they decided to a sequel to The Fugitive, yet another uh, television uh, export. They decided to not even keep the name, the you know, The Fugitive colon U.S. Marshals or anything that we would do these days. They just called it U.S. Marshals and pretended it had nothing to do with that Fugitive movie from a couple of years ago. Um, and this is the, you know, Wesley Snipes was in Blade this year. He was also in U.S. Marshals. And this is something I'm finding, you know, Ben Affleck, in Armageddon, but also in Phantoms. People are doing two movies, one of which is well-remembered and the other one of which is uh, U.S. Marshals. Um, did anyone even... S- I saw it. Anyone else? I've seen this track uh, down uh, U.S. Marshals. I think I saw it with you. You think you saw it with me, Ian? Mm, yeah. Oh, on DVD. Yeah, on DVD, not in the cinema. No, I saw it at the cinema and I didn't watch it on DVD. Well, I have seen it, though. Yes. No, you, you wasn't with me because I saw it at the cinema. I, I mean, I quite enjoyed it. It's a really, really... I mean, I think one of the things that I, I, I've discovered uh, stepping through the, the 1990s on, in cinema is that apart from a few standouts that then formed the basis for action cinema in the future, most action movies in the 90s were desperately average. Like, really, really average. They're not movies that have stood the test of time, have they? Well, Saving Private Ryan was this year, wasn't it? Oh, I haven't seen that. No. Um, let's look at the list now and see if there's anything here that's jumping out at me. Oh, Taxi, the France, French, French version came out this year. Yeah, now you see, although that's fine, that's a, I mean, this is a very important movie in a way because it's the creation of the, it's, it's Europa Corp's first stab at Luke Besson giving jobs to French film production companies and all this. I wouldn't know anything about Taxi until about 2001. Well, uh, it's it, it sort of um, circulated around. And be, as much as I enjoyed Saving Private Ryan, to go back on that, I wouldn't really class it as an action film. 
in the all the action happens in the first 30 minutes and then it's not really that type of film anymore yeah so it doesn't really sit it doesn't really sit in in that i think at all i wasn't going to push it certainly no action action was quite uncomfortable this year in its its seat for a start this is the first year in which we don't have an Arnie Sly Dukov. Sly is, in fact, uh, providing a voice in Ants, an animated film with <laughs> Woody Allen, Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman in it. So, you know, Ants, does Ants continue your theme of two movies coming out with exactly the same thing? But didn't Ants come out the same year as Bugs? A Bugs Life, yes. yes. Bugs Life. So, oh, yeah. Well, that, that, the, the, there is a reason why these things happen, and it's called corporate espionage. And this, the, you know, if it was, it was a shark's tail and it was Finding Nemo and this stuff goes on quite a lot in particularly the animation business is, is known for being absolutely evil to each other. Um, I could tell you stories about this. I won't bore you here, but, um, but essentially, yes, people, people are bought, people are, you know, get, gain information and then quickly churn out a film by smaller animation companies on the same subject just before the other one comes out. So in action movies this year, we have Armageddon, which, uh, you know, was a very popular movie despite its terribleness. Uh, so you have Blade, that's a sort of action-y vampire movie. Then you have um, Deep Rising, which uh, was good. And I enjoy it. It's a good B-movie creature feature. But it didn't do very well because people didn't know how to take something like that. And there's a lot of people that complain about the ropey CGI. Bearing in mind how much ropey CGI there is this year, that's a bit rich to single out that one film. I mean, there's loads of ropey CGI in this, and people still say that The Faculty's an alright movie. Yeah, that's got just as much ropey CGI in it. Where is this coming from, people? But we have uh, Enemy of the State, which uh, is actually a film which did okay when it came out, but I enjoyed over it. time... Yes, it's a very enjoyable movie, and not only that... Wait, what? Sorry, Justin? I know, it's one of those films I'll watch again and again, and I, I really enjoy Enemy of the State. Well, this is good. exactly the point. In retrospect, people came back to Enemy of the State and said, well, this is kind of like, you know, all the president's men or something, but for the, the, the millennium generation, this idea of a surveillance society being tracked down, it, it's really clever. But at the time, people were like, nah, it's an action movie. And no wonder, because I suppose it gets ca caught in the crush, because we haven't even started yet. We've got, uh, of course, Godzilla. We'll come back to Godzilla. Hard Rain came out this year. It's like Die Hard, but in a flood. It's like, yeah. Right. Is there anything That's less it. exciting than people wading through water for two hours? Um, How dare you? Titanic was the best yeah. film last year. This is the beginning <laughs> of the end for uh, Christian Slater. And then we've got uh, Knock Off, which is quite hilarious that there's a film called Knock Off, which was an action movie starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, which was <laughs> obviously the title referred to the fact that it was all to do with um, jeans, like imitation Levi's jeans. But the fact is that Jean-Claude Van Damme at this stage is known for making knockoffs of better action movies. So that's what, what we're getting on. Lethal Weapon 4 was looking very tired. Uh, we've got um, The Mask of Zorro, which people think was quite fun. I've not actually seen it, so I, I can't comment. Uh, Mercury Rising. Um, we've got uh, oh, uh, The Negotiator, which was notable for the fact that it isn't an action movie. It's a talky movie that happens to have some guns in it. And so people thought that was a very clever thing 
but they've since forgotten it. The Negotiator is is like a forgotten movie. I'm not going to say a forgotten classic, but it's it's a movie that's all right that people have just kind of nobody watches The Negotiator anymore. It's not fondly remembered. It's not fondly rewatched. It's just a thing that happened. Uh, Ronin came out this year. This is something that people regard with some fondness, but that was uh, seen even at the time as quite old school in its approach to action. Notable for the fact that Sean Bean doesn't actually die. No, he gets um, instead. They send him home without any money. You're fired. Yeah. Oh, Sean Bean, you're uh, fired. Yes, you're fired. Get out. Uh, Small Soldiers came out this year, which had a problem in that one of the characters played by Phil Hartman, I think it was Phil Hartman, he died, and in the movie his character dies being stabbed to death by miniature artificially intelligent soldiers uh, toys. So so they cut the film down because they felt it was disrespectful as he'd actually died, and it kind of made a nonsense of key parts of the movie. And I think there were people kind of arguing, yeah, but he loved to act, you know. He was not well and he was acting. Surely he'd want you to see the movie. But they cut it down and it made it a bit rubbish. Uh, Soldier came out this year. That's the one that you talked about, Ian. It's the link-up with Blade Runner. We'll probably come back to that in a moment. Uh, U.S. Marshals, Vampires, Who Am I with Jackie Chan movie this year. So really... Every action movie I've known is at least underwhelming, or it performed badly, or it didn't fit right with the, the mood of the time. I don't think in this year we got, really, the only movie that seems to fit in with people's idea of what an action movie should be, ironically, is Armageddon. And what does that say about the human race, eh? <laughs> We're doomed regardless mm. of asteroids heading towards Earth. Because uh, everybody moaned about Godzilla, didn't they? Uh, well, we should, so I suppose, take a moment to talk well, about that. It, indeed, as I, as I lampooned in the opening skit, it, they killed Godzilla with missiles. If, if only Japan had tried shooting missiles at Godzilla. <laughs> that was my main problem with Godzilla. You know, in my mind, Godzilla is stomping on buildings, but apparently you can hide Godzilla in New York. Yes. Well, that's not... Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the Japanese were quite happy to have the... Matthew Broderick Godzilla in the Godzilla canon but uh, I don't know if you know this but in the Godzilla universe that Godzilla from this film is like a joke kind of pygmy Godzilla that is like oh yeah don't worry about them that's the equivalent you know like if you've got a rat infestation that's bad if you have a mouse infestation it's irritating well it's the same kind of thing you know if you've got real Godzilla that's a very big problem. A so is it, is it like a cinematic Godzuki? Yeah, there's a scene in one of the uh, official Japanese Godzilla movies where they're joking, going, "Yes, America thinks they fought the real Godzilla," <laughs> uh, and he and that that oh, smaller right. Godzilla turns up again in uh, one of the Godzilla movies. I think Godzilla ruffle stomps him and yeah. kicks him into the uh, uh, the Opera House, where he probably <laughs> explodes. Uh, he is referred to by fans as Zilla. Zilla, yes. Right. Gotcha. Just oh, that's one calorie, not quite Godzilla enough. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Well done, the Japanese. That's, <laughs> that's great. While we discuss this, it might be worth noting, of course, that in, in addition to 
the year of the the disappointing or ill-fitting action movie. This is also the year of the uh, ill-fitting or disappointing horror movie, as we have uh, Bride of Chucky coming out this year, and also, uh, I suppose, uh, The Faculty kind of sits in there as a sort of offshoot of Scream. But the real offshoots of Scream are things like Halloween H2O, I Still Know What You Did, last <laughs> summer and we also have urban legend came out this year and yeah just the things that things that as the song to paraphrase the title of the song things that make you go you know just this was a really bad year for horror movies overall species too yeah oh no wait and vampires is widely regarded as one of the worst 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 john carpenter movies I think really this is actually that this the the quality of the horror is really responsible for the spoof movie, isn't it? That came out, which parodied most of those that we just talked about, the yeah. um, scary movie, um, which is pretty much like shooting fish in the barrel, to be honest, because you know they were terrible to begin with. So um, yes, I yeah, it's not a good time yet. For, it's for, not the time for, for horror, horror definitely. But I think, on the other hand, I remember with affection many of the films of this year. I've already talked about The Avengers, of course, and Blade came out this year. That was a good movie. Dark City came out in 1990. Oh, how can you how can you look down in despair oh, I, upon a year that has Dark City in it? I adore Dark City, and I know at the time I don't think it was critically well received, or it was certainly. It wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but I, for me, I just ate this up. I just loved it. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind it's, of Matrix-like, you know, it's Matrix-like, but it's got other stuff, you know, it's kind of... Well, it's this weird Matrix as well, so... Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it has been compared to it, um, but it's got a lot more. I mean, it's got its own, it's definitely its own thing as well. It's very surreal, strange, kind of unsettling. It looks amazing, just the kind of starkness and the costumes and this kind of weird reality they've kind of created. Very odd, strange, kind of disturbing in some ways. And I just think it's a cracker of a film. And if you haven't seen it, please go and see it because it's just... And if possible, you know, watch the director's cut because that's even more yeah. gooey, dark city-based joy in one thing. And I think, I think honestly... Uh, Dark City and the Avengers make good companion viewing. And I'll say this because yeah. whereas Avengers really never found its audience until round about now when there are a few people who go, oh, I actually quite like that. Dark City has become a bit of a cult movie. And Dark City has exactly that same thing where, you know, Keith Sutherland's accent in this movie is terrible. Plus, yeah. there's a big twist in the movie, and Kiefer Sutherland tells you what it is in the first few minutes of the film right away. And it's got Richard O'Brien in it, which is always a good thing. Richard O'Brien always makes the film better. But at the same yeah. time, it's like he's a bit camp, which is like part of what he's in. And the whole movie... You're asking Richard O'Brien not to camp it up. You're asking a bit much here, aren't you? I'm not asking him not to. I'm saying that's what's going to happen. Richard O'Brien's in your movie. Yeah. There's going to be an element of camp going on there essentially the whole thing is that and then when you actually find out what's going on and what all of this is really you know the thing the reason why Kiefer Sutherland can tell you what's happening at the beginning is because at that point an audience just really couldn't take it in even if Kiefer Sutherland was there whispering it in a faux German accent in your ear you really got to the point where really this is what the aliens are doing and that's why they're doing it 
this makes no sense. Your brain is <laughs> screaming at you that it's completely goofy. And it is. But at the same time, it's like goofy in a way where it's like, I don't mind. You can be goofy. And I'm not. Really, I mean, we've talked about how terrible uh, horror movies were this year. And then this is the year of Fallen with Denzel Washington and John Goodman. Not yes, really a not really a horror no. movie in the traditional sense, but much better than, much scarier than any of the actual horror movies that came out this year and more disturbing, gets more ha-ha under your skin for those people that have seen it. If you haven't, go out and watch it, then you'll understand my joke. It's a good film. Uh, it's a good film. Marvellous. Actually, one of the few Denzel Washington films I actually like, because I I'm, have to say, I'm, I'm rather tired by Denzel Washington because he's always that guy. You know, he's the... He's the commissioner in charge. He's the, you know, he's that authority figure. He's always the same. And this one, he's actually really, I mean, he's playing around with acting with this. It's, you don't know where it's going. It's, I, yeah, I, it's, it's definitely one of my favourite films. Certainly he is, but it's a good, it's a good film. I enjoyed it. Uh, I think, well, I'm a massive Denzel fan, but I think Denzel is kind of like, He's in the same genre, because you say he's always an authority figure, which is interesting, because he's not. He's often, he does play authority figures. He plays a lot of blue collar workers. There, yeah, there are quite a lot of blue-collar workers. I think what you're identifying there, Justin, is that Denzel Washington is like Nick Cage in that he plays a kind of a Denzel Washington-y kind of guy. And what you mean is you yeah. find the Denzel Washington persona arduous, like many people yeah. find the Nicolas Cage persona arduous. And, you know, the yeah. arguments that Nicolas Cage is the worst actor are all based on the fact that you don't like Nicolas Cage doing his thing. And your argument is based in exactly the same way, and you're perfectly entitled to it, that Denzel Washington's persona is kind of arduous. I happen to really like it and find it very refreshing, because it's quite different to a lot of other stuff that happens in movies. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he, yeah, it, it's a, it's proper, you know, Denzel Washington type... But I do like when people push themselves and do something different, and I think this is a key example of that. Well, he's subverting uh, the Denzel Washington, because the, one of the things about Denzel Washington is that he's got that... What you're talking about is that quiet, yeah, I know what I'm doing. That's what that, Denzel yes. Washington always... Yeah, I know what I'm doing. And, yes, he plays around with that persona, and this is one of the main... I understand that that film, where he's the drunk airplane captain that's a perfect Denzel Washington role because he gets that persona of yeah I know what I'm doing I'm drunk off my ass and I'm flying a commercial airliner but I know what I'm doing and people believed it and that is kind of the point here it's like again you know really you don't know what you're doing and I think Denzel Washington is very wise in choosing roles like that but um yeah he, he John Q he plays a blue collar worker who can't get insurance for his son uh, in one of the biggest box office bombs of all time the remake of the Manchurian candidate he plays someone with gulf war syndrome in a very Denzel Washington way it's not a bad movie it's just he it didn't do very well in the cinema it's just really weird uh, so yeah that, that, that's something that's uh, going to be upcoming but yeah fallen came out this year so that's a good thing pie the first Darren Aronofsky movie came out this year. That's uh, yep. worth mentioning. Uh, weird math science fiction for the win. So, yeah. From the sublime to the ridiculous, just to note, Psycho, the remake of the Psycho. Oh, the frame-by-frame frame remake, yeah. isn't it? I've, I've, never, I've never seen this. It's a, it's, a shot, it's the most pointless film, one of the pointless films ever been, because it's a shot-for-shot remake. So, in other words... If you watch Psycho and you go, oh, this is a bit black and white for me. I'll, I'll never watch this. It hasn't got enough Vince Vaughn. It's just 
utterly ridiculous. Um, so, don't yeah, so, I mean, you know... Hear about films, don't watch a flipping shot-by-shot remake of it, no. Yeah, so, I mean, so there are films in this year, I've just run through them, I can't believe that I'm looking at these films and going, yeah, so I really liked all of those films, and then searching for something else that I really like, and going, there are things that kind of I don't mind, but, I mean, I thought this was a really good a year, but I'm I'm kind of coming to the conclusion. Well, there are a couple of things I'll briefly speak about, because I think there's a couple of my favourite films, um... There is um, Meet Show? Joe Black, which I always like. I think it's a great film. Wow. I mean, it might be not the okay. kind of thing, but I think I think Brad Pitt is sparkling in that. There's something about him in that that is very watchable, um, well, and I like it. That film's so tedious, but carry on. Really? Yeah, okay. I can't, I can't uh, keep my uh, eyes open throughout it. <laughs> oh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. So that's the start of the kind of kind of... Brit gangster. British gangster. Yes. Um, Would like, everybody stop getting shot? Um, it was yeah. very questionable. You know, it's fun. You know, obviously lots of homages to uh, to uh, to various films. Uh, and um, I, I, I thought that was a lot of fun. Yes, I think Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels hasn't worn well, unfortunately. I really enjoyed it when I first saw it, but I think today, I, you know, over time I watched it more and more. I actually think... And this is maybe a controversial opinion that Snatch is the more rewatchable of the two movies. Maybe you know what I have never seen Snatch. It's one of my films that I've kind of lined up to see and I haven't haven't managed to do it yet. Oh, um, you might be right. To, to, to I think in the in the nineties there was a kind of resurgence of of British uh, low budget films, wasn't there? You know, art film like you had Train Spotting and things like that. This just well, was part of the same way. You've got to bear in mind that really, you know, the British film industry was pretty dead in the night. Oh yeah, this, this is why and they're so notable when they come along. It was slowly clawing its way back up, so there were definitely high points of that. Show is a sign of it emerging once more. In terms of, well, we've got to mention the Truman Show. Yeah, surely. I was going to say, oh, come of on, course, we're, we're, we have to mention the Truman Show. This is this is uh, I mean, uh, a movie this that's was, uh, sort of grown. I mean, it's weird. They've got some movies that over time have become. They were big at the time, and over time they've become less and less big and less and less impressive. I would argue that Armageddon is squarely in that bag. Nobody wants it. Goes, yeah. oh, I'm going to sit down and watch Armageddon. I love that movie again. Well, there obviously a few. There's a few with every movie, but it's not generally yeah. regarded as something that people want to watch again and again. The Truman Show was. People thought it was great at the time, you know, they did think it. And the, I, I mean, the thing is, it kind of got a bit overshadowed, I feel, the actual film itself, by people going, hey, Jim Carrey's in it, and he's he's acting and doing stuff like a normal person. And it's like, yeah, once we got over that, I think that that was... Uh, but Truman Show, just every year, it gets more and more weird, right. weirdly, you know, like... Okay. Well, I think it's because I, you know why I think it's because it, the message it's telling is getting more and more relevant. We, oh, yeah, no, we're that living in that. That's why more and more. Oh yeah, no, it's, that's absolutely why. It's just interesting. That... I, think, I think it's well deserved. I think it's a very, very good film. It's a clever concept that's time. properly explored, and I always appreciate that. Yeah, it's great, and I'll just give my answer. I'll tell the others before. So this is how this is how some people just don't get films. Okay. So I remember having this brief discussion with, I think it was a friend of the family, and they went in like, yeah, Trone Show was all right, but, you know, like, at the end of it, I just, 
what's up with that? It's like, I want to actually see what happens when he leaves and goes and gets about his life. I want to follow every second of it. I was like, why did this <laughs> end like that? It's like nothing there. And I, I, you know, if I had something blunt and large to hand, I might have well repeatedly hit him over the head with it. Uh, but I just kind of went, rolled my eyes, went, thought of internally, you are a moron. You don't understand what you've just watched. I think, and, yeah. <laughs> and there's no point me talking to you anymore. <laughs> to, to go, uh, to, to, to sort of take that on a sideways way, you know, this is actually one of the examples where we've got two films coming out in the same, you know, about the same sort of thing. But these actually make a diptych of commentary. If you watch The Truman Show and Enemy of the State, that's a very strange but eerily thematic double bill. Yep. Because, yep. you know, one is about a guy who doesn't realise he's being watched all the time in mundanity, and the other one's about a mundane guy who suddenly becomes, well, you know, if, the centre of If a... you're going to double bill any of the mistakes, enemy of the state, you've got to watch it with the conversation, haven't you? You know, the Gene Hackman film where he's a surveillance officer. Well, yeah, but, you know, I think that... But, but then if you want to stick within 1998, this is the one. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I was just pointing out that it's weird that those two movies... Movies, again, that people these days find more prescient than perhaps people did at the time. They both came out in 1998 together, sort of next to one another, sort of rubbing shoulders, as it were. But, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, apart from that, I mean... It's worth noting, for example, that this year saw Out of Sight, which at the time was a huge movie. It was, uh, and, you know, George Clooney was huge. Jennifer Lopez was huge. Um, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Steven Soderbergh was big. Uh, and here's Out of Sight. Of course, uh, Elmore Leonard adaptations. They were big at the time. And these days, who cares? The answer, not very many people. I mean, yeah, Rush Hour. Another one, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker this year. Yeah. yeah. Huge uh, at the time. Over time. Yeah. Uh, so Pleasantville. What do you think of Pleasantville? Oh, yeah. Pleasantville is an interesting <laughs> movie. A very interesting, you know, it's it's not, it's not a perfect film, but, I'm interested to imagine, but it's a very clever, interesting premise. And, I, you know, it kind of pulls it off. It's, it's, I think it's, yeah. Pleasantville sits in a place where if you watch it, and you had no real intention of watching it, and it just happens to be there. Someone puts it on, you come away, and you go, hmm, that was actually a worthwhile way to spend the last two, two hours or whatever. Whereas if you go, oh, I'm really up for this movie, and you go and watch it, you kind of go, mm, okay, we didn't quite live up to my expectations. Uh, but talking of films with a rather bizarre or variable colour palette, this is the year, of course, of What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams, Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. and Annabella Ciora, oh, good which Lord. I watched a few weeks ago I, because Sue hadn't seen it, and I just wanted I to know what she'd this. think of it. I, I saw this at the cinema because I was at the States at the, at the, at this summer. And when I came back, there was absolutely no mention of this film at all. So clearly it wasn't really put out as for an English audience because it just disappeared. I could oh, never. It was, it bombed like you wouldn't believe. Oh my God. It's a strange film. You know, it's, it's kind of intense, I think, visually. <laughs> so it, it is, you know, a canvas of righteous colour and paint and stuff thrown at you. Uh, it's also, though, weirdly, it's got that side of it, which is kind of like almost like a weird adult version of, you know, Mary Poppins, like kind of reality. And then it's really depressing <laughs> yes. as well, because it's all about suicide and, and death. death. And it's like well, death and 
So it's a kind of an old film, really. It's it's. I've, I've got. A doesn't film. quite sit together. It's certainly not something I would want to watch. It's a bit, you know. It's a. If you made like a a musical all dancing version of Schindler's List, maybe it's that. And I definitely <laughs> probably would want to watch it again. It's just okay. a crazy, you know, just yeah. So emotions uh, have been poured all over. Yeah, and you had thoughts on Well, that. we we saw it together, Leo, on DVD, and I think we spent most of the time riffing on it. We were like, uh, yes, darling, we're all living in heaven now. Note of caution, our children have become a bit interracial since we last met them. Yes. <laughs> 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 uh, because and it, it's like, be very careful what you say to your kids, because apparently they, they, they take these things far more profoundly than you may think. Because one throwy comment from Bob Williams going, oh, Asian women, they're so polite, and all of a sudden she wants to be one in heaven. What? So, yes, uh, there was a line in a trailer or a clip that I saw where Robbie Williams is going, where's God? And the guy kind of says, he's up there, you know, shining down on us, loving us. And I watched the movie, and the line wasn't there. I couldn't find any reference to God in the movie. No, basically somewhere along the lines uh, to this day, someone involved in the production went... Do you know what we want to do? You know how in 2014 they're going to do like Noah and Exodus and, and, and all biblical things are going to be big. Think of the reverse of that where we completely wuss out and don't have any kind of religious denomination in our after death posthumous fantasy. Just some kind of wishy-washy new agey kind of hodgepodge of half-baked spiritual ideas. That's the kind of heaven I want to see on screen. <laughs> and also... Like, what? Yeah, it's also the, 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 the decree of, oh no, she was a suicide. Suicides go to a different place. I'm thinking, well, there's some people in the audience now who are going to feel pretty bummed out because I've lost a relative or a friend because they unfortunately took their life for some reason. Tough of that. They can now imagine their loved one suffering forever in their own personal psychological hell. Yeah, and then just to rub insult into injury, if you aren't Robin Williams, there's no way to rescue them. Because nobody's ever heard of a suicide making it to heaven after they've suicided. Unless you happen to be Robin Williams' missus. In which case, the power of Robin Williams can bring you back to the <laughs> ring. Just like, really? The thing about it is, the big problem, I have watched it again. I think the first time you watch it, it's like a big old punch in the face. Of like, what? I, I feel somehow offended. I'm not sure how. When you've calmed down a bit and you watch it again, it's just lazy, messy, and it has a problem I've not seen very often of obsessively paying off. Like, there's this, you know, the well-known truism that Back to the Future has the best film script ever because every line builds the story and pays off elegantly throughout the whole story. Yeah, and therefore it's a great screenplay. This is like someone, an alien had that kind of concept explained to them and tried to do a good job. But it's like, you know, someone who's learnt to smile from just trying to do it without really knowing what a smile is. Yeah, everything pays off. But like you say, to an obsessive degree, like everything, and you know, oh, and this is relevant because of this, and this all comes up, so that basically it becomes this incredible self-absorbed navel-gazing experience that just, yeah, it's, 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 and because of that, if you look at it on the level of the Robin Williams character is completely self-absorbed, 
then fine, it's a story that happens. But to try and derive any wider wisdom out of what dreams may come is a bit like believing what's in your fortune cracker is really going to tell you the future. It's it's just a weird movie to have got all that money and, and got made. And, and don't even get me started on Sphere. Well, let's not... Oh, I was going to say Sphere. <laughs> yes. If you, want, if, yeah. you want a, if you want a great movie, I'll tell you what. Take Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, Samuel L. Jackson, Liv Schreiber, and Queen Latifah and put them underwater next to a plot that makes absolutely no sense. Oh, these Brilliant. underwater movies, yeah. they're always popular, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to note that that happened and then move on as quickly as possible. Well, shall we, uh, go, but shall, it, shall we go to Soldier? Oh, yeah, let's, 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 uh, I think that's probably going to round us off because I believe we've actually done a really good job of running through 1998 with our arm out. Um, so <laughs> let us finish off by talking on the subject of Soldier. Um, and then, and then it'll be time for final thoughts, I think. Yes. So, uh, Soldier. Yes. I, 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 I would not have seen this movie except for the fact I was stuck on a flight to, to Australia. So, uh, in flight entertainment, oh heck, I'll watch this movie. It um, unfortunately gave uh, Kurt Russell thoughts of giving up acting altogether because this was his, his latest flop after a series of flops. Um, it cost 60 million to make it made, uh, 14 and a half million. So it was, it was a, a colossal flop, but it is, it is bizarrely, uh, set in the Blade Runner universe written by, uh, David W. Peoples, who was one of the authors of the original Blade Runner script, uh, as well as replicants being in the movie. I don't think they refer to as replicants, but there's also references to Ten Hours Gate. So I don't know if you can call it an official reference, but it's, it was the intention of the makers to be a kind of side sequel, I suppose. It, yes. it is, it is as to, uh, uh, Blade Runner as uh, Prometheus is the alien. Yeah, pretty much. And basically, Kurt Russell is a soldier that's kind of he's an older model, and they the nasty soldiers bump him off with the with the newer model, and dump him on a, on a garbage planet where a load of colonists are trapped. Uh, and yeah, for some reason they they come back and attack the colony for some reason, and Kurt Russell is kind of absorbed into the colonists' lives. And even though he's a he's a soldier and is therefore a highly dysfunctional human being that only knows how to like build weapons and fortifications, he kind of like uh, rallies the colonists and fights on their behalf and goes full Rambo against all the new advanced models and wipes them out. And as Gary Bruce is in there as well, being the man he is, yeah. And, and there we have it. Uh, that is that is soldier. Sorry, uh, Paul W. S. Anderson's point on his finest out. It was all right, but it was like, yeah, I can see why no one went to see this, really. Yeah, it's just a film where I think it's very similar, uh, oddly, tonally, uh, but not... It's similar in concept to the reason why Phantoms didn't do so well, because it feels very light. Yes, there's not much to it. Stuff. There's not much to it, exactly the same way that Phantoms is. And you watch it, and it's like, well, no, quite a lot is going on here, but you can't... You can't dig it. You can't get your head round it. And it is, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a way to pass an hour and a half. I just realised that, uh, probably the, 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 I mean, it's not really inside our bailiwick, but, uh, on the way out as a cult quotable movie, uh, it's definitely worth noting this is the year of the big Lebowski. Yes. Uh, yes. so yes. So the dude abides as do the eighties kids. The eighties kids abide also. I have come to the end of 1998 and to be fair, when we started the episode, I was thinking, this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, the three movies I watched last night, Phantoms wasn't the best, but I certainly enjoyed The Avengers, and I certainly enjoyed um, 
the faculty and I was sad not to be able to also cram in Ronin. So I was like, I, I, confidence was high when I began this enterprise. But as we've gone through it, I've realized, it, it, you know, with, with a few exceptions, it's pretty much the 90s all over again. There, there's a few things it's... that really stand out as being great. And then the rest of it is like disappointing or ill-fitting or uncomfortable or just an outright disaster. I think... Just I think, the same you know, as everything else. They haven't put it out yet. Then people are looking at the successes we've had. Maybe I mean, last year was was pretty strong, wasn't it? Ninety seven, and they're, and they're looking at those and going, "Oh, let's make those." And they haven't quite got it yet. The system hasn't been is not is not fail safe at the moment. There are. I, I think culture yeah, taking a big deep twice. breath before it does nineteen ninety nine. Really, isn't it? And I, yeah, I mean, there is the other point, which is that this year, the CGI. Generally, you know, they, there was some good CGI. Like, there's actually quite a lot of CGI in um, Fallen, but it's used to erase crowds and do subtle things, so you wouldn't even know it was there. But then there's sometimes when you really do know the CGI is there, and that's where it's, it really sucks. This is the really early days yet. You know, it's only when you spend a lot of, and I mean a lot of money on it, that it, lo- that it looks spectacular. You know, those Jurassic Park movies were hellishly expensive. But people are like, oh, we can do all this stuff. And I remember, I remember absolutely this time going seeing films. And all people were trying. They were like, look what we can do. And they just, you know, by and large, it looked awful. They, it looked bad then. And, it, you know, it certainly isn't going to test stand the test of time. So as yet, those standards, the, you know, the ability to do it reasonably cheaply have, have yet to come we have to wait a little while so it's still a bit hit and miss hit yeah and miss. And what, i mean what's yeah. really sad about it is that you get something like deep rising where stephen summers who is a guy who knows you know when i know my cgi limitations but then i'm yeah. being asked by the studio to bust them so what i do is i make the film itself kind of tongue-in-cheek in order to deprecate from the poor standard of the cg special effects and he just gets roasted for it anyway i mean you know like people don't care that he made the whole film a little bit silly deliberately just to say yeah i know the cg isn't all that great but never mind all the bad cg uh you know bad cg is just a technical limitation uh bad movies they're a whole different kettle of fish and if people want to maybe go to the window throw it open and say i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take blues brothers 2000 anymore where might they go to vent their spleen and frustration that somebody actually made Blues Brothers 2000, Ian? Where might they come and tell someone about it? Who cares? Well, one place you could go to rage about that particular lackluster unnecessary sequel would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in that number, so it's 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put links to a podcast as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about. I'm hurrying through this one now. Uh, so for those point web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so e-i-g-h-t-i-s dot kids dot podmat dot com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of choice, or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. This is where the most recent podcast can be found. For the legacy of our podcast, you must go to leostablefoot.com, where you can indeed find a full legacy of our podcast, and indeed other articles. I'm not saying that there is going to be an article on there about how sad it must have been to be John Goodman making The Big Lebowski and then making Fallen and then being in the Blues Brothers 2000 in 1998. But I might write an article about that, in which case you'd have to go there to find it as long with the legacy of our things. If you want to see some Blues Brothers 2000 fan art, where, Justin, might they go to completely avoid that? 
yes, you can find it. You can find a save and they're devoid of such things on my DeviantArt page. It's just in whitestock.com. Uh, so there we go. And uh, that it was 1998. Um, a year of very strange. It's got a very strange texture. 1998. It's um, it's definitely an acquired taste. <laughs> I think that's the way that we're going to put it. Um, and so that is that is really all that, that we have to say on, on that subject. And uh, you can of course join us again as the end of the millennium approaches apace. Mm. You realise, of course, gentlemen, that what this means is that not only are we going to have to reckon very soon with our summer box office choices and whether they were the, really the best thing to have worked out but we're also going to have to work out what our top five films of the 90s are we're nearly at a point where we can think about that but for now let us go and bury our head in a, 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 a bucket of cold water and try and run down the excitement uh, so i'm going to say farewell it's a goodbye from me and it's a farewell from him 